and welcome to Truth or Lies, Fighting Back Against Misinformation. I'm Lily Jelinas. I'm your moderator for today's webinar. I am currently the Editor-in-Chief of American Nurse Journal. I'm also an Assistant Professor at the Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine and the Patient Safety Section Director at the University of North Texas Health Science Center in Fort Worth, Texas. Let's meet our panelists, two experts in the field of misinformation. Dr. Antonio Villarreal is a professor and Margaret Bond Simon, Dean of Nursing at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing. She's also a senior fellow at the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics. Also important for today's webinar, she served on the National Academy of Medicine Workgroup on identifying credible sources of health information in social media. Also joining us is Eliza Narva. She's Director of Ethics at the Hospital of University, at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. So we look at today's topic and how important overcoming misinformation and disinformation is for nurses. And that's because nurses have such an important role in helping patients, families, and communities access credible, trusted health information. Our objectives for today, today's webinar, is to define misinformation and disinformation in healthcare. Believe it or not, definitions vary. We want you to have the evidence-based definition. Today, we'll discuss the nurse's role in stopping the spread of misinformation and we'll describe organizational roles and support systems essential to addressing misinformation. We have a number of resources for you. We hope you'll access. If you look at the top left of your screen, you'll see uh, an article from American Nurse Journal in February of 2022. It was one of our most popular and downloaded articles called Preventing the Spread of Misinformation, a Role for All Nurses and Dr. Villarreal was one of the authors. In addition, that uh, panel that I noted that Dr. Villarreal uh, served on, uh, you'll see that the white paper that they produced, Identifying Credible Sources of Health Information in Social Media, Principles and Attributes. It is a terrific resource. I've used it, I use it often. And you'll also see that you can access the webinar slide deck there. When you registered, you uh, gave us good information about what you wanted to learn, what you wanted to know about the topic of misinformation. So the American Nurse Journal team created this word cloud that comprises a number of the uh, items that you'd like to talk about, but certainly at the top is how do we prevent uh, spreading misinformation? How do we as nurses um, uh, ensure that we are using the most credible information. So I'd like to turn it over to Dr. Villarreal and have her talk to us about the definitions. So Tony, will you get us started? Great, thanks Lily, and uh, thank you for having us here. Um, it's a pleasure for me to be here and to share all I've learned about misinformation and disinformation um, in this process here. So starting with the definition, misinformation is information that conflicts with the best scientific evidence available at the time. And as we certainly know during the pandemic, there was a lot of changes as we learned about 
uh, the virus and about treatment um, that changed over time. In contrast, disinformation is the coordinated or deliberate effort to spread misinformation in order to gain money, power, or reputation. So let me give you an example, an ex and, and this is extreme. An example of misinformation might be that if you ingest Clorox, that will get rid of the virus. That's clearly misinformation. Disinformation would be if Procter & Gamble or whoever makes Clorox was promoting the use of Clorox in order to, uh, to up, upscale, uh, increase sales of Clorox. So that is disinformation. So subtle differences. I think most, most uh, healthcare providers get themselves in the area of misinformation, although there have been some trusted healthcare uh, providers who have been on the disinformation bandwagon, and we can talk a, a little bit about that later. Next. So why is misinformation and disinformation so important? So um, we have always had misinformation in terms of, of, of health and health care because it's not an exact science. Again, as science evolves, we learn different practices that were, uh, were standard practice at one point in time and then changed as, at another point in time. But the difference is, is with the advent of social media and the widespread use of social media platforms, misinformation and disinformation, as well as correct information, um, have an opportunity to for a scale and spread beyond what we ever had imagined. So again, there's a high volume of information. There's a lack of quality control. Nobody, move, nobody moves that out. Um, so again, people don't really know what to believe um, and, and what is truth and what not. So the World Health Organization called this an infodemic. And the, effort, the effects of this infodemic include that there's confusion and support for behaviors that can harm health as well as support health. It absolutely leads to a mistrust in science. I'm sure how many of you have heard from your patients, I don't know who to believe anymore. And it certainly, as we saw, undermines public health um, protections, um, especially during the, the time of the pandemic. Next slide. So the nurse's role is, is absolutely critical here. And we as nurses have an important role to play because patients and families trust us to recommend and affirm credible sources of information as well as information that they're getting. So that means that we as nurses must assess where and why, how people access information, and we can help consumers develop skills to evaluate information critically. Next slide. So as Lily mentioned, I was part of a National Academy of Medicine panel, uh, and we were charged with identifying critical sources of information in social media. It was a fascinating panel, and we certainly identified what we thought was a workable framework to help people, not just help people, but actually specifically to help social media platforms elevate sources of credible information. And as Lily mentioned, I think the, the lessons learned that we have for how we in fact can um, put forward sources of credible information has implications beyond the use of social platform. So in this phase one, and the sponsors of this, uh, of this effort were Google and YouTube, and they wanted some help given the volumes and volumes of information 
what, how, what and how should they responsibly act in terms of elevating sources of information? And so our group focused primarily on the U.S. context. And as a way to narrow what we were doing, we were asked to focus on nonprofit or government entities that had vetting and review mechanisms. We did not, um, but as a result of what we did in this first goal, there certainly has been global uptake and consideration of principles for different contexts. Um, can you go back to the, the previous slide? Sure. So as a result of the work that we did in phase one, we were contacted by the World Health Organization and the British Medical Journal to have conversations with them about the applicability. And they wanted to know what we were thinking as a committee as they considered uh, identifying and moving some of these principles to a more global context. context. And so in phase two, we were actually uh, called together again by the Council of Medical Specialty Sources by the National Academy of Medicine and by the World Health Organization to consider a wider range of sources of information, those that didn't have vetting or review mechanisms, such as patient, patient advocacy organization, think tanks, individuals, and drug device manufacturers, and also to think about how this applied to a global context. This phase two, we have completed our work and um, the work that we're doing is under review and uh, hopefully we'll be out within this next month. Next slide. So the first work that we did was identifying principles in terms of what comprises, comprises credible sources. We said first that they had to be science-based and this was again, providing the best, looking at the best evidence at the particular time. And so consistent information that's consistent with the best scientific evidence available. The second was that be that the um, that the information be objective. And so we wanted to make sure that we um, that credible sources were uh, minimized the influence of conflict of interest or bias that might compromise the information. So identifying potential conflicts of interest, sponsors, who would identify, who would benefit from um, information as it was being sourced was an important component. And then finally, being transparent accountable and accountable, disclosing limitations of information as well as conflicts of interest, content errors, or procedural missteps. Um, back to the second principle, I just wanted to mention too that we were looking for information that might've been peer reviewed um, or again, uh, vetted in some mechanism. So to ensure that it was, it was um, science-based and was representing the science accurately. Next slide. And so we also created this credibility algorithm that again was used primarily by, our, by um, the social media companies, uh, YouTube in particular. And again, we focused on, um, for this particular uh, panel, looking at sources of nonprofit or government organizations. And so the questions we asked, is the source or subject um, to a pre-existing standardized vetting mechanism? Because for us, the, the, um, the peer review was an important consideration. And then making sure that there was alignment of the principles and a preponderance of credibility attributes, again, which are listed there. And we said, if, if not, then the source may not be credible and should not be elevated by the social, by YouTube to be able to move, to be able to move forward. 
And so and if you could go through the rest of the algorithm here. And so and these are, again, additional considerations that we put forward to help the social media companies. But again, if you take a look at it, these are good guidelines for us to be able to take a look at as to, again, whether we consider the source credible. What we wanted to move away from in the committee was telling people this is a bad source and you shouldn't believe anything that comes out. We really wanted people to apply these principles and apply this algorithm to help them think about, is this something that I can and should believe in? Um, so again, we wanted to give the consumer, uh, we wanted to give folks the ability to vet the information themselves. And so with that, I'm gonna turn that over to my colleague, um, Eliza, to talk more about nurses' role in advancing credible information. And Tony, just real quickly before Eliza starts speaking with this uh, slide still up for our audience, the February 2022 American Nurse Journal article that Tony co-authored, um, this algorithm was one of the most popular aspects of the article. So if you download the article that's in your resource list for this webinar, you'll see the algorithm prominently displayed in that particular article. Great, thank you. Oh, just, just one more comment that I wanted to make to, uh, too, because I think the impact of this algorithm, certainly if you take a look at YouTube, they absolutely did use this to um, elevate credible information. So um, if people followed or if sources followed this, um, in terms of listing, if you were looking at diabetes drugs, for example, and you had sources of information, they would, they would elevate that so that the first thing that you saw and clicked on would be uh, more credible sources of information. So again, it has had the, the uptake of this article, this work has been incredible, incredible. So thank you. I would, I would agree with that. It was really uh, great work. Eliza, um, we do have the issues, as you know, of the ethical considerations when it comes to social media. So if you could get us started with understanding the ethical considerations around misinformation and disinformation. Absolutely. Uh, thanks so much, Lily, and thanks, Tony. It is really wonderful to be here, and I feel really excited um, about the focus that we now have on misinformation and disinformation. And obviously, nurses play a huge role um, in, in battling this and helping patients get the care that they need. Um, so, of course, um, when it comes to ethics, I think it's useful to sort of reframe what are we talking about when we talk about ethics in this situation? We're thinking about the why underneath why we do everything that we're doing. Let's think about for a little bit, why is it so important for us to combat misinformation and disinformation? And I like to take us back to our code of ethics. I'm sure you all read it every day. Um, not joking, it is actually a quite a lovely document and is very helpful for thinking through how we should be, right? It is our non-negotiable standard. It's the promise that we make to ourselves, to our patients, to our colleagues, to society in general um, around who we are, what our roles are, what our responsibilities are. Um, it reminds us how to take action, when to take action, and why we're taking action. And it actually offers really practical guidance for how to manage sort of day-to-day -day ethical questions, as well as larger eth ethical dilemmas, um, and, you know, more uh, large, more uh, diverse and um, uh, diffuse issues like combating misinformation. Um, 
and it really clarifies our duty. At the core of this is our obligation to tell the truth and to provide evidence-based care. If you can go back to my slide, sorry. Oh, well, that was strange. I don't know how that happened. I apologize. That's okay. Go through it. And so I won't make you read the whole uh, code of ethics today, but I want to just point out a couple of our core obligations that come from the code that really touch to our obligation to combat misinformation. And I think at the center of that, we're all very familiar with our obligation to patients, which is our primary obligation, and our um, respect for human dignity. And I think these really tie into respect for autonomy, right? We want our patients to be able to make autonomous decisions. And in order to do that, they have to have good information. If patients don't have good information, they're not gonna be able to make safe, healthy, good decisions. And so right there, we have an obligation to really make sure that we know the right information and that we're giving them the right information. Um, just as we have obligations to our patients. Uh, provision five talks about the duty to self, right? Our duty to preserve our own integrity. Um, so we deserve the same level of care as our patients do. And that means when we're making decisions, we also need to know the right information. Um, and to preserve our integrity, we really need to make sure that we're practicing with the most evidence-based practice that's available, right? We have an obligation to preserve our integrity as nurses, um, as nurses, as healthcare providers, we also have an obligation to advance our profession by staying really closely to the research and to the, to the most up-to-date scholarly inquiry. Those are really core to who we are. Um, and then we have this duty to protect the public and ourselves. I think that became very clear to us um, during the COVID pandemic, right? Where we went from sort of the standard of focusing on individual patient care to a more utilitarian standard where we really had to think about providing the greatest good to the greatest number and protecting the public sort of as one. And I think that this is a similar obligation. We're protecting the public um, from misinformation. We have that obligation to make sure that public health is protected, right? And that we are doing everything we can to help ourselves as a nation stay healthy. Next slide. All right, so we know we have all of this public trust and we have all of this clinical knowledge. So how can we use this in conversations, right? This is tricky and I would encourage everyone, whether you're talking to your sister or your uncle or a colleague or a patient, let's approach all of these conversations with curiosity and a willingness to listen because underneath all of these uh, conversations, our patients are scared, they're concerned, they wanna do the right thing, they are looking to have good information and we have a real opportunity, I think, to connect with them and help them get what they need, right? Um, and I think in these conversations, it's really important to acknowledge the challenge of determining what's true. Even for trained professionals, it can be really tricky to figure out where good sources of information are um, and what to trust. I think asking those questions to clarify where a misunderstanding might have come from or where a patient has a knowledge gap um, is really important in thinking about what we can target towards them. Um, and I think just making sure that we're holding that patient-nurse relationship at the core, we're acknowledging patient perspectives and really being non-judgmental. Even on the inside, you might be having different judgments or feelings, that's totally fine. But in the moment with your patient, you're making sure that you're putting that to the side, right? You're assessing whether your patient is open to learning. You're not gonna force it, 
but you're going to use clear language and you're going to provide additional knowledge resources when your patient is open to it. What we want to do is make sure that we are still able to build that trust with patients. So avoiding conflict, right? If this patient is not open to hearing other things, that is okay. We can still be respectful. We have to be respectful when we disagree because we want to be able to give that patient the opportunity that if they change their mind or if they have a question later, they're going to feel comfortable coming back to us and asking that question or saying, hey, you mentioned a couple uh, resources. Would you mind writing those down for me? Or could you could you just run those by me again? Um, I think when we're take, when we're thinking about our obligation to patients around misinformation, we have to take this long view. One conversation may not be enough. And don't go into the conversation deciding, I'm going to change this person my, person's mind. I think going into it of, hey, I wonder if there's a way I can connect with this patient and help them move towards some better sources of information that they're going to understand and that they're going to trust. You know, Eliza, you give us a, a good perspective and a reminder around clear language and the point of health literacy really comes to mind for me here. Are we really putting our uh, resources for patients and having these tough conversations? Have we really considered health literacy in the many, many different languages? I'm sure at the hospital, the University of Pennsylvania, I practiced there. I forgot there was like 13 or 15 different languages that are spoken there, which can be a challenge for um you know, nurses to make sure we're using the best health literate uh, knowledge resources when we're talking about um, trust, building trust. I think that's a great point, Lily. You know, a lot of scientific information is in very technical language, right? Yes. And so we yep. need to make sure, even if our patients are willing to trust the source, that they're going to understand the information and be able to take the important takeaways and apply it to their own healthcare decisions. Um, nurse leaders also need support in how they support their frontline leaders, right? This has to be an institutional response. We can't expect individual nurses to do this on their own. It is a huge task. Um, and so leaders might consider things like rounding regularly, right? Providing that just-in-time information or practice update, you know, hearing from the front lines. What's going on? What are they running up against? circulating tools for them to use with patients um, and up-to-date practice protocols so that we are able to really practice right at the edge of the research, right at the edge of evidence-based practice. I think offering live as well as asynchronous education on emerging trends and credible sources of information and how to bring them up is really, really important. These need to be available regularly and as needed. Part of what we're talking about here is the actual information. And part of what we're talking about is how we talk about it. And so I think the thing that goes hand in hand um, with the information is how do we have really positive conversations with our patients? Um, how do we help them stay comfortable? And again, how do we make sure that we're leaving the door open? So I think really strong communication skills, um, which nurses already have, but uh, we need to make sure that everyone feels comfortable talking about these topics. And as nurses, we're not alone, right? We're working in environments where there are other healthcare professionals. So let's get together with them. Um, let's build an alliance. Let's make sure that we all are using the same information, that we're relying on each other, and that we're really all in lockstep when we think about how to address these situations. Um, I think as organizations, we need to really have clear policies that hold healthcare workers responsible 
for protecting patient health that has a really clear um, imperative about how we should be treating this information and indicates that it's going to be taken very seriously. Um, we need to hear from nurses and all frontline healthcare workers, what's working, what's not working, how can we support you better, and using real world examples to emphasize how damaging misinformation can be, I think is really compelling. Thinking about COVID-19, thinking about vaccines and uh, masking and all of the sort of public debate about those things, I think is really compelling as we think about how to make sure that this is centered um, in what nurses are concerned about moving forward. Obviously, I would say that the code of ethics is very helpful in framing uh, nurses' ethical obligations, but we do need to connect back to the why. Why is this so important, right? It's our obligation to patients. It's that duty to self. It's all of the things that bring us to the bedside. Um, engaging your other ethics resources. You know, do you have an ethics committee at your hospital? Can you talk to them about this? Um, do you have an ethics consult service? You can call them if you have a question about how this can be handled. And then again, just taking that long view, right? We need to change our cultures. We need to make sure that we're working in cultures that are cultures of safety um, and evidence-based practice. Um, and so I think those are the things that we can think about as we move forward. lead back to you. Great job. And thanks, Tony and Eliza. Uh, it's time now to answer your questions. We will answer as many as we can, or uh, you can enter your uh, your question. I see many popping up here. Or you can email us at webinars at healthcommedia.com. Let me get started with the first one here. Uh, I find that not just inability to understand what the research is saying, but just basic critical thinking so that they can select good information to dig into. Next is, this is a real good one. We're used to Amazon, right? We won't buy anything on Amazon without four or five stars. We know that CMS has a star system for rating hospitals. Um, so is there a STAR system that nurses can use to evaluate the credibility of a particular source? Tony, did y'all talk about that in the, the National Academies of Medicine yes. work group? Yes, and that's it was just, again, a, a very challenging conversation um, for a couple different reasons. So we started off with identifying credible sources of information. Um, and so we chose uh, government agencies as well as nonprofit or organizations. I think we applied and encouraged the application of some principles that there was a vetting system peer, peer reviewed and there were minimal conflict of interest. We also recognized from the list that's in the academy group that within any organization or source, there are bad actors. And so just because somebody is from the World Health Organizations or, or maybe speaks on behalf of the World Health Organization, somebody might have a platform that is absolutely contrary to what, for example, the World Health Organization might think. So all of this relies, and again, as we're thinking about AI, and the ability of information, as you mentioned, Lily, the critical skills that we have as nurses and embedding evidence-based information is critical. So the bottom line is we can help to make things easier 
and help to elevate critical source, critical, uh, credible sources, but it doesn't take the place of the critical thinking skills and questioning that we as nurses need to be doing. Uh, so I, I wish there were a magic bullet, but there is no magic bullet. Um, and we rely on, I mean, that's what nurses do. We question uh, and we, uh, we put in context the information that we have for the patients that we have. And so, you know, if, if somebody says something that seems a little fishy, um, check it out. Uh, check it out and, and ask your colleagues, as Eliza said, um, talk to others. Um, and do your own investigation. So it's uh, it, it's time consuming, um, but again, if we want the best information available for our patients, that's what we need to do. That's right. Building on the communication skills that are so essential to good nursing practice. Um, here's another question. You keep referencing COVID. So what are you saying that we should tell patients about masking and the vaccine? Who'd like to take that one? <laughs> and again, it's it's uh, listening to the patient to find out what is it that the patient is questioning, right? It's uh, yeah. listening. I, I mean, I think that's an interesting question. I think that we want to be able to convey the state of the uh, virus now. You know, what do we know? Where where are we with boosters? What are the current masking recommendations? I mean, I think many places are still having masking. I think we want to be able to convey to uh, to patients that, you know what, things are constantly changing. That's how science works. That's how we discover the best evidence. We're here to always keep you up to date on, on what is happening, but that does mean that things change. You know, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of criticism about, well, things are changing so fast, which is like, yeah, that's the way it sort of works when you're discovering um, something new. Um, and so I think that we need to always be following the best evidence and the best science as we um, decide how we're managing COVID, how we're managing masking, or how we're managing the next pandemic or, or public health crisis. Um, you know, I think that our best resources for things like that are going to be um, the CDC, right, NIH, FDA, these organizations that are really tasked with our health and public health, but are not uh, making a profit off of it. And Eliza, wouldn't you say that we also as nurses need to know what the policies and practices of our own organizations are um, and making sure that the patient that's in our care in that organization, we are imparting the, the, the talking points, the coaching, whatever our organization has landed on when we get those questions, because they happen quite frequently. Mm -hmm. So uh, Lily, if I, could, if I could add, you know, since you asked about masking and about vaccines, I think the issue of masking is a little bit, is a little bit easier. Um, and I think the fact that there aren't so many mandates around, I mean, there are mandates again for like healthcare facilities to wear masks. And what I tell, what I tell people is like, look, if you wanna wear a mask and that makes you feel better, wear a mask. It, it doesn't it doesn't matter. I mean, that's something that you're doing for your self-protection or your family's self-protection that has minimal that has minimal risk to anybody else. So if that's what makes you feel comfortable, and I think the you know sort of the opposite end is letting folk know if if you're in a situation and, and a colleague wants to wear a mask, let them wear a mask. <laughs> let them wear a mask. I mean, it's not hurting you, it's not hurting anybody. So 
You know, we just need to come to that understanding and recognition that that's what that person needs to be able to do. The issue of vaccines is is uh, is fraught with um, with lots of um, with lots of myths, with lots of concerns, with lots of whatever. I think, as Eliza said, we have recommendations about what people need to be doing, and if people ask, you refer them to the recommendations and just say, and 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 again, you contest contextualize it. This is why you considering the vaccine is important because you're over 65, you have a chronic condition and you're a caregiver for X, Y, and Z. So these are things that put you at a, uh, at a risk category. And then when you take a look at the risk of the vaccine, here's what we know. It doesn't mean that you're going to get sick from the vaccine. It doesn't mean that you're going to be protected from ever getting COVID, but this is what it will do. Uh, so dispelling some of the myths that people have about the vaccination, and then just saying, what you know, what what do you think, or or why aren't you, you know, what what are barriers for you? Again, the whole exploration of trying to eliminate what those barriers or what those concerns might be. And again, certainly empowering the 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 patient, the family, to make those decisions for themselves. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, I think mm -hmm. we have this chance to connect with patients so that they will ask us, right? And I think framing it that way is sort of like, listen, getting vaccinated is a big, it's a big choice. And uh, the choice that you make is gonna impact you and your whole family. And we wanna make sure that you have all the information, right? Because it's a choice that you're making. And so make sure that if you have questions, you let us know and we can connect you with good information rather than sort of saying like, you you must do this. This is you're like, that's not gonna be effective. We need to partner with folks. That's right. Here's another one. Uh, an audience member states it's very difficult when the perpetrator of misinformation is the nurse. A colleague of mine was showing pictures of her face with shingles and stated that she was hospitalized. But yet when asked if she got the shingles vaccine, she stated that she didn't believe in it and she believed in letting her body heal herself. I'm at a loss of what to say to her. What should I say? I would start with questions. Here. Yeah. <laughs> I would start with help me understand your thinking process. You know, I hope you're okay. Like what led you to make this decision? I'm curious to know. That person has clearly decided something that's pretty intense, but I think approaching with some empathy and some curiosity to see if you can sort of figure out where they veered off into that sort of decision path could be helpful. That's a good good point. It's about those questioning skills, isn't it? Listening and questioning skills. You don't always have to have the answer, but you do want to understand the position of the person that you're talking to. Um, so this is a good question. So you have to tell the bad with the good? Or maybe it's more about a balanced conversation, uh, but I do come back to those communication skills and, and listening. Um, one question is, will this recording be shared? We are recording this webinar and it will be available on the American Nurse Journal website. And I'll wrap up today's webinar with more information about that. Um, let me see here. They're really rolling in. How would you guide clinical staff towards being able to identify data from predatory journals? What a great question, because I know here at American Nurse Journal, we talk a lot about the importance of peer review and credible academic publication. 
So how do we, and you know, predatory journals do disseminate a lot of misinformation and disinformation because they're paid to do it. So what do we do about that besides partnering with our librarians, which uh, we certainly do in my organization? Well, you, you you took the answer out of my out of my out of my mouth, uh, and actually not out of my mouth, but it was a a comment in the chat um, using librarians again to help you with that with that information. So, you know, again, this gets back to what are credible sources of information, and if you know and see a a journal that's not credible because it doesn't have the type of peer review. Then, then you then you question. It's like I, you know, great that it was a published article, but you know, I'm I, I have to confirm other sources than what's in this particular area here. Um, so again, it's not just looking at at one source. And I think that was also one of the criteria that we use that it's not just based on one opinion, but that the preponderance of evidence or work that's going out there also support a particular position. Good point. So it is tough to give correct information with all the time constraints that we have as nurses and our nurse patient ratios are so high. How might we address this? How do we stay current? We're so busy. Um, do we have time to look up uh, a credible source, for instance? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to. We have uh, to. Right. We have to, and I think part of that is um, an institutional response, right? We need to be able to, as um, as administrations uh, of organizations, we need to be able to see like what are the developments and how can we disseminate them to frontline staff so that they have this at the ready, so that they're not spending a lot of their time looking this up. And I think a lot of you know clinical nurse specialists and educators are great about this. Um, the people who are in charge of nursing practice, this is really a responsibility for organizations, I think. Um, that is something that we can do to make sure that nurses who are spending time with patients are able to use that time to connect with patients and provide care. They're not spending that time doing research, I think. And we do have an audience member that reminds us, use the algorithm that Tony and talked yes. about. Have it, have it readily in front of you to guide you through those conversations and thinking. Um, are nurses, this is a real good one, are nurses subject to uh, either uh, legal mitigation or uh, legal consequences for spreading information that may end up being misinformation or outdated information? Are there legal consequences? So let me, um, I think our, our attorney can answer that a little bit better, but let me tell you, I think there's, I think all of us at some point might be, have been responsible for sharing some misinformation. Um, so I would say in the context of, you know, good, good practice that that happens. And so I would say that that's less likely to happen unless you do something really egregious, but that's less likely to happen. But the the concern in um, our with our medical colleagues is in the area of disinformation. And in particular, it's individuals who have used a platform to spread disinformation. And there have been some, you know, two examples of, um, of legal action. One, and Eliza, you might know better, or Lily might know better, but I think there was a case in Washington where 
um, a physician was um, either his license was being revoked because of dis of disinformation. Uh, so again, very egregious. And I do know that there is um, from the uh, Board of Internal Medicine that they have instituted that if people are uh, individuals, physicians are um, found to have perpetuated disinformation that they will take their certification away. And that has to do with, again, the principles of um, an expert clinician. So again, very much taking a look at ethical issues and responsibilities of a physician in, in moving that forward as a basis for revoking e-certification and revoking whatever. So I think part of this, again, and I'm talking about disinformation, would have to happen both from nurse practice acts. And I don't think, and I'm not aware of any um, individual organization around certification um, of nurse practitioners or even a, a specialty certification making that type of action, but it has been happening in uh, with some of our medical colleagues. So Eliza, I don't know if you have um, thoughts or anything to add or. Um... I, I think you covered it. I, uh, I this makes me think about um, influence, influencers, which we've been talking a little bit about, about nurse influencers and sort of the care that we have to have around something like influencing. Most influencers are trying to influence you to buy something, right? And I think that's something to think about really carefully as we sort of navigate that. Nurses, I think people believe us. Anything that we put out into the world is gonna be seen by a nursing audience, but then a broader audience. So we're really representing our profession. And I think that while influencing can be helpful for editorials or providing an opinion, I think we need to be really careful about what information we're providing. You know, if if we want to be influencers and be out there that we're linking back to, you know, the WHO, the CDC, um, the Gates Foundation, these sort of reputable organizations that have real science and are relying on on research. Um, I think if nurses want to be influencers, just make sure that you're being professional. You're you're uh, you're representing all of us. You need to be very careful to not give any names or any kind of confidential or private information. Um, and I think just be mindful that you don't want to be in a situation where you are giving out disinformation, right? As Tony is saying, that is quite serious. Um, and I think as we're talking to patients or colleagues or anyone else who may be interested in influencers, I think it's one of those situations of sort of like follow the money, right? Like what is that person, is that person making money off of selling you bleach to gargle for your COVID or whatever else it might be? Um, are they linking you back to reputable organizations? Um, and are they referencing public health goals? Are they, you know, are they really taking you back to places that you can trust? Um, so I think I would be really cautious with uh, nurse influencers or any kind of influencers who are giving you health information. Good point. We only have a few moments left here. Let me see if I can tackle a few more. Uh, is there a board of medical professionals who determine that something is disinformation? And if there is, are they open to hearing and listening to other scientific data? So I'm not I, aware of a, a disinformation board. No, I, I think again, it's. A, I think in the state of Washington, it had to do with um, 
uh, an act that was egregious to um, the, their licensing ability. So, you know, you're right, there's no misinformation board. And I'm not sure how the um, Board of Internal Medicine made that distinction, um, but they, they have taken certification away from a few, um, from a few physicians and, um, and, and again, have taken heat for it, um, political heat for it as well. Um, but again, I think if they, you know, again, it's an organization that lived up to the to their ethics, to their code, and worked on implementing it. So, you know, you can disagree with uh, with what they did, but um, to me, um, they were true true to their values. And and I'll disclose that I'm on the board of the ABIM Foundation. So. <laughs> So, but you're so right, and I would add we have both our own individual accountability and there's organizational accountability, and it takes both in yeah. order for us to ensure uh, the the truth and get away from opinion-based practice. We're all mm -hmm. about evidence-based practice. I'll take one more. We've got about 30 seconds. What would be the best way to address misinformation that's given by another doctor or nurse? You're practicing, you're at work. And you go. I think you kind of start the conversation. Go ahead, Tony. I, I think we're talking over each other. I think we might have said the same thing. I said you counter with the information. You counter with credible information. Just say, I know you said this, but hey, uh, here's this. Uh, help me understand what the you know. Uh, help me understand, you know, your your position here because it, it's it's contra uh, to what guidelines are are contra to this. So, absolutely. Well, we're out of time. I want to thank Tony and Eliza for a lively and informative conversation. And thank you for joining us for such an important topic. This webinar has been recorded and will be available on demand at myamericannurse.com. Thank you for joining us. Have a good rest of the day.